Chapter 11, Part 6 of A Diary from Dixie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Laurie Ann Walden. A Diary from Dixie by Mary Chestnut. Chapter 11, Columbia, South Carolina, Part 6. June 9th. When we read of the battles in India, in Italy, in the Crimea, what did we care? Only an interesting topic, like any other, to look for in the paper. Now you hear of a battle with a thrill and a shudder. It has come home to us. Half the people that we know in the world are under the enemy's guns. A telegram reaches you, and you leave it on your lap. You are pale with fright. You handle it, or you dread to touch it, as you would a rattlesnake. Worse, worse, a snake could only strike you. How many, many will this scrap of paper tell you have gone to their death? When you meet people, sad and sorrowful is the greeting. They press your hand. Tears stand in their eyes, or roll down their cheeks, as they happen to possess more or less self-control. They have brother, father, or sons, as the case may be, in battle. And now this thing seems never to stop. We have no breathing time given us. It cannot be so at the North, for the papers say gentlemen do not go into the ranks there, but are officers, or clerks of departments. Then we see so many members of foreign regiments among our prisoners, Germans, Irish, Scotch. The proportion of trouble is awfully against us. Every company on the field, rank and file, is filled with our nearest and dearest, who are common soldiers. Mim Cohen's story today. A woman she knew heard her son was killed, and had hardly taken in the horror of it, when they came to say it was all a mistake in the name. She fell on her knees with a shout of joy. "'Praise the Lord, O oh my soul!' she cried in her wild delight. The household was totally upset. The swing-back of the pendulum from the scene of weeping and wailing of a few moments before was very exciting. In the midst of this hubbub the hearse drove up with the poor boy in his metallic coffin. Does anybody wonder so many women die? Grief and constant anxiety kill nearly as many women at home as men are killed on the battlefield. Mim's friend is at the point of death with brain fever. The sudden changes from grief to joy and joy to grief were more than she could bear. A story from New Orleans. As some Yankees passed two boys playing in the street, one of the boys threw a handful of burned cotton at them, saying, I keep this for you. The other, not to be outdone, spit at the Yankees and said, I keep this for you. The Yankees marked the house. Afterward, a corporal's guard came. Madame was affably conversing with a friend, and, in vain, the friend, who was a mere morning caller, protested he was not the master of the house. He was marched off to prison. Mr. Moyes got his money out of New Orleans. He went to a station with his two sons, who were quite small boys. When he got there, the carriage that he expected was not to be seen. He had brought no money with him, knowing he might be searched. Some friend called out, "'I will lend you my horse, but then you will be obliged to leave the children.' This offer was accepted, and as he rode off, one of the boys called out, "'Papa, here is your tobacco, which you have forgotten.' Mr. Moyes turned back, and the boy handed up a roll of tobacco, which he had held openly in his hand all the time. Mr. Moyes took it, and galloped off, waving his hat to them. In that roll of tobacco was encased $25,000. Now the Mississippi is virtually open to the Yankees. Beauregard has evacuated Corinth. Footnote. Corinth was besieged by the Federals under General Halleck in May 1862, and was evacuated by the Confederates under Beauregard on May 29th. End footnote. 
Henry Knott was killed at Shiloh, Mrs. Auger wrote to tell us. She had no hope. To be conquered and ruined had always been her fate, strive as she might, and now she knew it would be through her country that she would be made to feel. She had had more than most women to endure, and the battle of life she had tried to fight with courage, patience, faith. Long years ago, when she was young, her lover died. Afterward, she married another. Then her husband died, and next, her only son. When New Orleans fell, her only daughter was there, and Mrs. Auger went to her. Well may she say that she has bravely borne her burden till now. Footnote. She lost her life in the Windsor Hotel fire in New York. End footnote. Stonewall said, in his quaint way, I like strong drink, so I never touch it. May heaven, who sent him to help us, save him from all harm. My husband traced Stonewall's triumphal career on the map. He has defeated Fremont and taken all his cannon. Now he is after shields. The language of the telegram is vague. Stonewall has taken plenty of prisoners. Plenty, no doubt, and enough and to spare. We can't feed our own soldiers, and how are we to feed prisoners? They denounce tombs in some Georgia paper, which I saw today, for planting a full crop of cotton. They say he ought to plant provisions for soldiers. And now every man in Virginia, and the eastern part of South Carolina, is in revolt, because old men and boys are ordered out as a reserve corps, and worst of all, sacred property, that is, Negroes, have been seized and sent out to work on the fortifications along the coastline. We are in a fine condition to fortify Columbia. June 10th. General Gregg writes that Chickahominy was a victory manque, because Joe Johnston received a disabling wound, and G.W. Smith was ill. The subordinates in command had not been made acquainted with the plan of battle. Footnote. This must be a reference to the Battle of Seven Pines, or to the campaign of the Chickahominy, up to and inclusive of that battle. End footnote. A letter from John Chestnut, who says it must be all a mistake about Wade Hampton's wound, for he saw him in the field to the very last, that is, until late that night. Hampton writes to Mary Macduffie that the ball was extracted from his foot on the field, and that he was in the saddle all day, but that when he tried to take his boot off at night, his foot was so inflamed and swollen the boot had to be cut away, and the wound became more troublesome than he had expected. Mrs. Preston sent her carriage to take us to see Mrs. Urbamont, whom Mary Gibson calls her Mrs. Bergamot. Miss Bay came down, ever-blooming, in a cap so formidable I could but laugh. It was covered with a bristling row of white satin spikes. She coyly refused to enter Mrs. Preston's carriage, to put foot into it, to use her own words, but she allowed herself to be over-persuaded. I am so ill, Mrs. Ben Taylor said to Dr. Trezevant, Surely she is too ill to be going about. She ought to be in bed. She is very feeble, very nervous, as you say, but then she is living on nervous excitement. If you shut her up, she would die at once. A queer weakness of the heart I have. Sometimes it beats so feebly I am sure it has stopped altogether. Then they say I have fainted, but I never lose consciousness. Mrs. Preston and I were talking of negroes and cows. A negro, no matter how sensible he is on any other subject, can never be convinced that there is any necessity to feed a cow. Turn him out and let him grass. Grass good enough for cow. Famous news comes from Richmond, but not so good from the coast. Mrs. Izzard said, quoting, I forget whom, if West Point could give brains as well as training. 
Smith is under arrest for disobedience of orders, Pemberton's orders. This is the third general whom Pemberton has displaced within a few weeks, Ripley, Mercer, and now Smith. When I told my husband that Molly was full of airs since her late trip home, he made answer, Tell her to go to the devil. She or anybody else on the plantation who is dissatisfied, let them go. It is bother enough to feed and clothe them now. When he went over to the plantation, he returned charmed with their loyalty to him, their affection, and their faithfulness. Sixteen more Yankee regiments have landed on James Island. Eason writes, They have twice the energy and enterprise of our people. I answered, Wait a while. Let them alone until climate and mosquitoes and sand flies and dealing with negroes takes it all out of them. Stonewall is a regular brick, going all the time, winning his way wherever he goes. Governor Pickens called to see me. His wife is in great trouble, anxiety, uncertainty. Her brother and her brother-in-law are either killed or taken prisoners. Tom Taylor says Wade Hampton did not leave the field on account of his wound. What heroism, said someone. No, what luck. He is the luckiest man alive. He'll never be killed. He was shot in the temple, but that did not kill him. His soldiers believe in his luck. General Scott, on Southern Soldiers, says, We have elan, courage, woodcraft, consummate horsemanship, endurance of pain equal to the Indians, but that we will not submit to discipline. We will not take care of things or husband our resources. Where we are there is waste and destruction. If it could all be done by one wild, desperate dash, we would do it. But he does not think we can stand the long, blank months between the acts, the waiting, we can bear pain without a murmur, but we will not submit to be bored, etc. Now for the other side. Men of the North can wait. They can bear discipline. They can endure forever. Losses in battle are nothing to them. Their resources in men and materials of war are inexhaustible, and if they see fit, they will fight to the bitter end. Here is a nice prospect for us, as comfortable as the old man's croak at Mulberry. Bad times, worse coming. Mrs. McCord says, In the hospital, the better born, that is, those born in the purple, the gentry, those who are accustomed to a life of luxury, are the better patients. They endure in silence. They are hardier, stronger, tougher, less liable to break down than the sons of the soil. Why is that? I asked. And she answered, Something in man that is more than the body. I know how it feels to die. I have felt it again and again. For instance, someone calls out, Albert Sidney Johnston is killed. My heart stands still. I feel no more. I am, for so many seconds, so many minutes, I know not how long, utterly without sensation of any kind, dead. And then there is that great throb, that keen agony of physical pain, and the works are wound up again. The ticking of the clock begins, and I take up the burden of life once more. Some day it will stop too long, or my feeble heart will be too worn out to make that awakening jar, and all will be over. I do not think when the end comes that there will be any difference, except the miracle of the new wind-up throb. And now good news is just as exciting as bad. Hurrah! Stonewall has saved us! The pleasure is almost pain because of my way of feeling it. Miriam's Luria and the Coincidences of His Life he was born Moses, and is the hero of the bombshell. 
His mother was at a hotel in Charleston when kind-hearted Anna de Leon Moses went for her sister-in-law and gave up her own chamber that the child might be born in the comfort and privacy of a home. Only our people are given to such excessive hospitality. So little Luria was born in Anna de Leon's chamber. After Chickahominy, when he, now a man, lay mortally wounded, Anna Moses, who was living in Richmond, found him, and she brought him home, though her house was crowded to the doorsteps. She gave up her chamber to him, and so, as he had been born in her room, in her room he died. June 12th. New England's butler, best known to us as Beast Butler, is famous, or infamous, now. His amazing order to his soldiers at New Orleans and comments on it are in everybody's mouth. We hardly expected from Massachusetts behavior to shame a Comanche. One happy moment has come into Mrs. Preston's life. I watched her face today as she read the morning papers. Willie's battery is lauded to the skies. Every paper gave him a paragraph of praise. South Carolina was at Beauregard's feet after Fort Sumter. Since Shiloh, she has gotten up, and looks askance, rather, when his name is mentioned. And without Price or Beauregard, who takes charge of the Western forces? Can we hold out if England and France hold off? cries Mim. No, our time has come. For shame, faint heart. Our people are brave, our cause is just, our spirit and our patient endurance beyond reproach. Here came in Mary Canty's voice. I may not have any logic, any sense. I give it up. My woman's instinct tells me, all the same, that slavery's time has come. If we don't end it, they will. After all this, tried to read Uncle Tom, but could not. Too sickening. Think of a man sending his little son to beat a human being tied to a tree. It is as bad as Squeers beating Smike. Flesh and blood revolt. You must skip that. It is too bad. Mr. Preston told a story of Joe Johnston as a boy. A party of boys at Abingdon were out on a spree, more boys than horses, so Joe Johnston rode behind John Preston, who is his cousin. While going over the mountains, they tried to change horses and got behind a servant who was in charge of them all. The servant's horse kicked up, threw Joe Johnston, and broke his leg. A bone showed itself. "'Hello, boys. Come here and look. The confounded bone has come clear through,' called out Joe, coolly. They had to carry him on their shoulders, relieving guard. As one party grew tired, another took him up. They knew he must suffer fearfully, but he never said so. He was as cool and quiet after his hurt as before. He was pretty roughly handled, but they could not help it. His father was in a towering rage because his son's leg was to be set by a country doctor, and it might be crooked in the process. At Chickahominy, brave but unlucky Joe had already eleven wounds. June 13th, Decca's wedding. It took place last year. We were all lying on the bed or sofas, taking it coolly, as to undress. Mrs. Singleton had the floor. They were engaged before they went up to Charlottesville. Alexander was on Greg's staff, and Greg was not hard on him. Decca was the worst-in-love girl she ever saw. Letters came while we were at the hospital, from Alex, urging her to let him marry her at once. In war times, human events, life especially, are very uncertain. For several days consecutively, she cried without ceasing, and then she consented. The rooms at the hospital were all crowded. Decca and I slept together in the same room. It was arranged by letter that the marriage should take place. 
a luncheon at her grandfather Miner's, and then she was to depart with Alex for a few days at Richmond. That was to be their brief slice of honeymoon. The day came. The wedding breakfast was ready. So was the bride in all her bridal array. But no Alex, no bridegroom. Alas, such is the uncertainty of a soldier's life. The bride said nothing, but she wept like a water nymph. At dinner she plucked up heart, and at my earnest request was about to join us. And then the cry, The bridegroom cometh! He brought his best man and other friends. We had a jolly dinner. Circumstances over which he had no control had kept him away. His father sat next to Decca and talked to her all the time as if she had been already married. It was a piece of absent-mindedness on his part, pure and simple, but it was very trying, and the girl had had much to stand that morning, you can well understand. Immediately after dinner the belated bridegroom proposed a walk, so they went for a brief stroll up the mountain. Decca, upon her return, said to me, "'Send for Robert Barnwell. I mean to be married to-day.' Impossible. No spare room in the house. No getting away from here. The train's all gone. Don't you know this hospital place is crammed to the ceiling? Alex says I promised to marry him today. It is not his fault. He could not come before. I shook my head. I don't care, said the positive little thing. I promised Alex to marry him today, and I will. Send for the Reverend Robert Barnwell. We found Robert after a world of trouble, and the bride, lovely in Swiss muslin, was married. Then I proposed they should take another walk, and I went to one of my sister nurses and begged her to take me in for the night, as I wished to resign my room to the young couple. At daylight next day they took the train for Richmond. Such is the small allowance of honeymoon permitted in wartime. Beauregard's telegram, he cannot leave the army of the West. His health is bad. No doubt the sea breezes would restore him, but he cannot come now. Such a lovely name, Gustave Tautant Beauregard. But Jackson and Johnston and Smith and Jones will do. And Lee, how short and sweet. Every day, says Mim, they come here in shoals, men to say we cannot hold Richmond and we cannot hold Charleston much longer. Wretches, beasts, why do you come here? Why don't you stay there and fight? Don't you see that you own yourselves cowards by coming away in the very face of a battle? If you are not liars as to the danger, you are cowards to run away from it. Thus roars the practical Mim, growing more furious at each word. These Jeremiahs laugh. They think she means others, not the present company. Tom Eugee resigned his place in the United States Navy and came to us. The Iroquois was his ship in the old Navy. They say, as he stood in the rigging, after he was shot in the leg, when his ship was leading the attack upon the Iroquois, the old crew in the Iroquois cheered him, and when his body was borne in, the Federals took off their caps in respect for his gallant conduct. When he was dying, Meta Eugee said to him, An officer wants to see you. He is one of the enemy. Let him come in. I have no enemies now. But when he heard the man's name, No, no, I do not want to see a southern man who is now in Lincoln's navy. The officers of the United States Navy attended his funeral. End of chapter 11, part 6